0: Tony Evans has pointed out that everybody has in their home manufactured products, appliances, toasters, refrigerators, stoves, microwaves, all those kind of things that we use. And they are designed differently. Engineers plan them out, and people put them together for different purposes. And the reality is those different parts make them operate, and each has a unique reason for being. And it doesn't matter how much you want. You're not going to bake a potato in your freezer in 15 minutes. And it doesn't matter how much you want, you're not going to be able to freeze things in your stove. You're not going to be able to take that appliance and use it other than the way it was created to be used, the purpose for it to be used. A toaster doesn't argue with the engineer or the manufacturing company Well, I don't like the way you made me. And I have greater aspirations than bagels and slices of bread. The person who designed the the product, the person who built the product, has control over how that product is used. Now, what does that have to do with Galatians? Well, we need to understand, as we've been going through Galatians, if it hasn't been clearer really listen today, the letter of the Galatians was written to a group of people who had received the good news of Christ, they had trusted in the Lord, and now they were being pulled away by some false teachers. People who were trying to lead them away from the good news of Jesus Christ and give additions to what needed to be happened for them to be saved. So the Apostle Paul built a very consistent view it said, those who are telling you, keep the law so that you may be saved, are actually teaching you, not, it's not even a gospel. It is not the truth. Trying to make your way, earn your way to heaven through your actions, your deeds, following the law, circumcision, whatever it might be, uh, was leading folks away from the idea of justification by faith and the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Now, did Paul do his job too well? Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at this idea and he has zoomed in on the idea of the law. And as it has come to a place, Paul has said so many different ways and many different times, you cannot earn your salvation by keeping the law. Is he now coming across as someone who hates the law? Now, we know that that's exactly what he was accused of. His enemy said, this is a man who is telling all of us around the world, you don't have to follow Moses, you don't have to do what the law has commanded you. And they were saying, he's tried to destroy it. So it was, it's not going to be hard to understand, if, if we've received this letter from Paul and have never heard these ideas before, we might be asking ourselves the question, What good is the law? Why was it ever even given if if it can't save us? Why? Well, if we're going to hope to try to understand what Paul was saying, we need to know what our outlook on the law should be. Should we simply say the law was a horrible, evil thing that put people under its thumb? Or should we try to recognize what the word itself says about the law? Now, I want you to hold on tight. It's going to be one of those days you really need to listen with both ears. Uh, And the reason I say that is simply this. A lot of different scholars have pointed out this may be one of the most difficult passages that Paul ever wrote. So much so, if you started trying to catalog every interpretation of our passage today, you would find somewhere over 300 different interpretations. Now, they may just vary by a little bit, but people have not always understood. So we're going to jump in, and we're going to try to really understand as best we can. So I'm going to ask you to stand as we look at the Word together. Galatians 3, verses 19 through 25. I am reading from the English Standard Version this morning. And Paul wrote, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could have brought justification then you could be justified by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, and just for a little note, the translation that Natalie read from inserts a word that is actually in the original text Before this faith came, Paul isn't saying that Abraham didn't have faith and Moses didn't. But before this faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith could be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. After all the talk about the law, and while the, the false teachers are in fact false teachers, Paul finally came around to address the purpose behind God's giving of the law. He finally said, So why did God do this if it didn't have the capability of saving us, as the writer of Hebrews said, the blood and bullocks never of blood of bullocks and lambs never save someone? Why did God do it? Well, I believe if we understand the law acts upon the human heart, when we get through this, I hope we'll see the law acts upon the human heart in such a way as to point us to the only real hope that we have possible. The only hope we can have that we could ever be made right with God. So how is it possible to get hope from law? Well, let's look at the steps that God took in bringing the law to to Israel the purposes behind it, and hopefully we'll understand. And I will tell you, these are not particularly enjoyable reasons for law to begin with. So this may not be the most devotional sermon I've ever shared with you, but you need to hang on. The very first thing that Paul says, the law was meant to reveal transgression. The law was meant to reveal transgression. The law came because of transgressions. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, I believe the Apostle Paul is saying something very important here. In what he had to write, Paul indicated that the law was supplementary to the promise. It came after the promise. It supported the promise. He actually states here, the law was added to the promises. So this marks it as supplementary. Now keep in mind, the false teachers are saying, justification by faith is great. Abraham was. But Abraham's salvation was completed when he obeyed the law. And the law came. And from now on, this is the pathway to salvation. Paul is saying that the law was actually subordinate to the covenant. The law was added to supplement to, for a, a subordinate purpose. And this, at, this is pointed out when he makes this statement. The law came to the people of Israel by Moses through the work of angels. Now, Exodus doesn't mention any angels. But while the Old Testament doesn't talk about angels being involved in the process, The book of Acts chapter 7 verse 53, The book of Hebrews 2.2, and then back again to Acts 7.38 specifically says that the angel, an angel was speaking to Moses. All this points to an idea that grew that said basically God was too holy to just come truly face to face with Moses. In fact, when God shows himself to Moses, he only shows a part of himself. Because if Moses saw the whole glory, he would have fallen down dead. And Joshua would have gotten his job a little bit earlier. It was added and it came through angels to Moses who act as mediator between God and man. And then Paul says something a little bit funny here, a little weird. An intermediary implies there's more than one person involved. In fact, if you have an intermediary, there's at least three people. One person who's been offended, another person who's been offended, and a mediator who tries to bridge the gap and bring them back together. That was the way the law came. And so Moses got, it gave Israel the law, it came to him through the angels. And then Paul simply says, But God is one. In other words, when you look at Abraham, God didn't use an intermediary with the promise. Now, He didn't show up to Abraham in His full glory. In fact, we don't know that Abraham saw any visible sign of God at all. But God comes and directly tells Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you the father of nations and your seed, and you will bless the entire world. And so Paul's making a point. This shows the superiority. God did not need an intermediary to come and give a promise to Abraham. So Paul is making a case here that the law was supplemental and subordinate. So then he finally asks the question, why then the law? Well, that then in that question takes this question back to everything that Paul has said before. If we are not justified by law, if our receiving the Holy Spirit had nothing to do with the law, if Christ was cursed because of the law, if our very inheritance depends on grace and promise, not on the works of the law, then why was the law given? Paul's going back to his argument. And somebody might have said, Paul, you might as well have just said the law was horrible. But he said the law could not accomplish what God ultimately wanted to do. And therefore, Paul... Says the law cannot save. His answer, why the law? It was given to produce transgressions. With the law, conscious, oh, no idea what's going on. We're having gremlins today. The law had a, did a conscious showing of disobedience to a definite commandment. Paul in the book of Romans draws out a point that from Adam until Moses there was a problem with sin. Technology. We'll see. In Romans 5, 13 through... No, I'm not going to say go home. Uh, In Romans 5 through 13... Paul says, from Adam to Moses, sin reigned. And that was shown by the constant dying of the human race. The, be- uh, the, the, the genealogies that everybody skips through, there's a theme that goes on if you've not noticed. So-and-so begot so-and-so and he died. So-and-so begat so-and-so and he died. And he died and he died and he died. Moses is making a point. Death is now part of the human race. Why? Because of sin. But Paul goes on to say, sin reigned, but not transgression. And what he meant, transgression is the breaking of a specific law. Up until that time, human beings may not have had a true understanding of what sin was. Did they understand they did wrong? Yeah. Cain, when God pronounces his sentence. That people are going to kill me. They know I killed my brother. God says, I'm going to take care of that. Cain was aware of some kind of guilt. I don't know that he ever understood when God told him, if your heart had been right, I would have accepted your gift. He just quickly blames Abel, and there is no sense of repentance. But when the law came, when they finally received the thou shalt nots, and all of the many hundreds and hundreds of law. They understood, if I do this, I am breaking my promise to God. I am moving away from what He has told me I should do. The giving of the law provided a standard by which people could say, this is transgression. This is sin. So the law enables people to recognize their own sinfulness. Uh, George Duncan said, men may sin in ignorance, but they transgress only when they have a recognized standard of what is right and and it was to provide such a standard that the law was brought in. So the law showed you this is what sin is. This is you telling God, I don't care what you want. I will do things that I want. But this was even only an interim. This was only a until. Paul said this function of the law would continue until the offspring came. Remember last week I pointed out that Paul said the promise was made to Abraham and his seed one instead of many? This is what Paul was getting at. The promise came to the offspring of Abraham, the seed, the son of the living God who took upon human flesh, lived a perfect life, went to die on a cross, was raised from the dead. And that brought the promise to a reality. So the law paved the way for Christ to come. Along the way, it revealed who we are. So what does this tell us about us? How do we react to the law? And this is one of those painful statements. The law reveals in an open way the inner issue of sin. We can't hide it anymore. We can't say, plead ignorance. My father was once, uh, let's say, he and his friends were taken by a game warden in the state of Nevada because they had fished over their limit. And my father, still fairly young in his life, told the judge, we didn't know what the law was. How many of you can guess that the the judge said, oh, well, I'm sorry, you didn't know, go ahead and go. It was the worst possible thing he could have said. Dad is convinced the fine doubled the moment he said, we didn't know what the law was fishing in your state. Folks, we have a tendency to overlook our sin. In fact, we have a pattern of overlooking our failures. At the very least, excusing them. Now, we aren't slow in harshly judging other people's sins, are we? We spend a lifetime telling people, you're doing this wrong and that person is wrong, that person is evil, that person is evil, that person is bad, but, you know, I make a few mistakes here and there. But the moment we became aware that there is a holy and righteous God who said there are things you should not do. We no longer have any hope of saying I didn't know. I didn't understand. Transgression is here. Paul speaks about this in Romans 7. In Romans 7 verses 7 and 8 he makes a very honest the statement. He tells us what one of his number one sins was. If it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin, for I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin is dead. My rebellion is out in front of me now. It's a reality to me. And when I fall, I may try to excuse myself. I may try to say it's not important. But I now know the truth. David, in his great prayer of confession, in Isaiah 51, having been confronted by Nathan, having believed he had gotten away with his sin with Bathsheba and the death of Uriah for a full year, we're told in Scripture, Nobody found him out, he thought. And he was fine until Nathan told a story revealing a sinner's heart. And he said, you are the man. And David prayed. When he comes to God, he doesn't say, Lord, what sacrifice shall I sing? He says, I'm throwing myself on your ten, the multitude of your tender mercies. And in verse 3, he said, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. So we can be thankful that God has opened our eyes to the truth of sin. You may ask, how can I be thankful? Danny, you just told me the law takes away all my excuses. The law takes away my rationalization. The law paints me uh, as a sinner. How can I be thankful for that? Because it's only when I see myself for what I really am that I become aware I can't fix this. David's whole prayer in Psalm 51, he actually says, God, you don't want the blood of bullocks. You don't want a sacrifice. The sacrifice you want is a broken and contrite heart. And I'm broken. And I need you to restore to me the joy of your salvation. Because I am broken. And until I come to that place of recognizing I am a transgressor. I'm not going to turn to the only one who can fix that. So the law came because of transgression. Well, let's move on. Our next step. The law came to show our failure. Along the same thing, but again, a little bit more personal as the human race as we see. It's important that you understand this. Paul is saying, I don't hate the law. When he asks the question, is the law then contrary to the promises of God, The false teachers would have expected Paul to say, be honest about the way you really feel. Of course it's contrary to the promises of God. The law is, the promises are contrary to the law. That's the truth. But Paul is pointing out in this text, the problem was not the law, but the human inability to keep it. His sharpest point when... He asks the question, is the law contrary to the promise? He makes an emphatic, certainly not. Absolutely not. Natalie's translation read. The King James really wanted you to see how big a no this was by adding words, God forbid. The point was, this is the strongest negative available to Paul in the Greek language. He is shouting, certainly not. It's a text message, all in capital letters, bold face. No! They gave us false premise, these teachers. A law has been given that is able to make alive, so righteousness comes by the law. And Paul says, that's not the truth. The reality is, no law has ever been given which is able to make people come alive. Thus, righteousness cannot be by the law. Remember, in this text, Paul actually quotes the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And in many areas, are it involves a lot of people. God is one. So Paul is letting his people know the God of promise and the God of Torah are the same. There are two different purposes involved in what he's doing. And Paul wasn't about to back down from his belief that the law did not complete salvation. You are justified by faith. So he gives a contrary to fact illustration. If a law had been given that could bestow life, then indeed one could be justified by keeping the law. But Paul has given a valiant effort to see show that it can't happen. In 3 verses 10 through 13 in this book, Paul says human beings are utterly incapable of doing every law that is given, keeping it. And if you can't keep it all, you're guilty. So again, his own personal experience. Romans 7. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it, killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So the problem is not, again, the law isn't bad. It just points out a reality. You and I will never keep it. We're not going to be able to. Paul is wanting them to see sinful disobedience is brought to the light by the law and the law makes it even tougher because we're hopeless to fulfill the law. Listen to one person's summary. God, uh, of this text we're looking at, God always intended to save by faith apart from law. God gave the law, but he gave it in order that it would condemn all and thus prepare negatively for redemption on the basis of faith. The law was not given to make a lie. So again, what does this mean? I see the law. Folks, and we don't have to get past the Ten Commandments. I love it when people tell me their faith, their religion is the Ten Commandments. And if I know them well enough, I will just say, okay, how well do you keep them? I don't have to worry about Leviticus. Folks, we break down there. The truth is, We are meant to be holy, created in God's image. He intended us to be holy. He intended us to walk in relationship with Him. But we are meant to be holy when we have nothing innately in us to make us holy. I want to say that all you are great people, but nobody, including me, are perfect people, and we can't do this. This is. Ourselves, This is the universal predicament of humanity. We will never have it within us to be perfect. And we try, and we come up with lists and rules and what's okay and what's not okay. And a lot of the rules we give are created by us. They don't even have a foot in the scripture. But we can't do it. Laura chick of Denver, Colorado, wrote in Leadership Journal, a man purchased a white mouse to use as food for his pet snake. He dropped the unsuspecting mouse into the snake's glass cage where the snake was sleeping in a bed of sawdust. The tiny mouse had a serious problem on his hands. At any moment, he could be swallowed alive. Obviously, the mouse needed a plan, and he came up with a brilliant one. What did the mouse do? he quickly set to work covering the snake with stardust chips until it was completely buried. Can imagine a little mouse dusting his hands off? That takes care of that. And the reality is, all that had to happen is the snake wake up. The mouse's plan wouldn't work. And so the, the man, watching the great effort he took, felt sorry for him and took him out of the cage. And then she writes, no matter how hard we try to cover or deny our sinful nature, it's fool's work. Sin will eventually wake up from sleep and shake off its cover. Were it not for the saving grace of the Master's hand, sin would eat us alive. So once again, Paul is saying, not to Danny, but to the whole human race, you can't do it. And every time you look at the law, you were reminded you cannot do this on your own. So how to, what, what should be our reaction? What is our application? We can rejoice that God honestly reveals our inability to do spiritually good things. To be spiritually good. I'm not saying we're as bad as we can be. I've told you before, if the human race were as bad as we can be, I wouldn't be anywhere near you. I would be hidden somewhere three, four hundred miles from the nearest human being. What I'm saying is, we're not capable of bringing ourselves to salvation. Someone has called this the bondage of a salutary despair. It overwhelms us with conviction. I am a sinner, and I can't stop it on my own. I cannot justify what I'm doing. And why is that good? Again, when we realize we can't do this, we have to look for someone who can. Someone who can save. love your neighbor as yourself. And a lot of people, I do that all the time. Really? Well, if I can define who my neighbor is, I can do a pretty good job. But I'm not going to tell you I can do a perfect job. There are times, frankly, I don't like my neighbors. I'm really glad God didn't say, like your neighbor. That's purely emotional. Loving my neighbor means I will look out for them. I will care for them. I will try to help them. I will try to show them a way they can become all that they should be in Christ. But nobody in this room does that perfectly. So I need to know the truth. As painful as it may be. I need help. I need someone. Who can change me. So Paul goes on. And it doesn't get any. Sweeter. It doesn't get any easier. He lets us know the law condemned. That it might open the door to salvation. And Paul uses a very tough image. Paul brings up. Going to jail. A jail sentence is being used to make Paul's point. The phrase, the law, the scripture, imprisoned everything under sin. The law is personified here. The law is the judge who has passed sentence and handed you over to the prison house, the jail. And sin controls true state of humanity. And none of us can get free. In this particular crime, we are lifers without any possibility of parole coming from our end. A lot of people try to point out specific verses Paul is talking about. I think Paul has a broader picture here. I think Paul is talking about the whole of God's revelation is revealing this to us. All of us sin, all of us transgress, none of us have the strength to free ourselves, and we are all entrapped. How do we know? Well, again, if you want the best commentary on Galatians possible, it will not be my sermons, it will be the book of Romans. And in Romans three, ten through 18 Paul makes a point. The, and though all of those verses are pointing to the universal nature of sin. All of us. Every one of us have incurred the wrath of God. We deserve the judgment we've given. We deserve being imprisoned. Paul looked at the whole of Scripture and concluded the human race can't fix the problem of sin. Therefore, none of us individually can. But what it does... Paul says we are under sin until, until the promise, until the coming of the one who can set us free, until the one who comes, who can break the chains for us. And the law convicts, until we come, as it were, face to face with the Christ that gave us hope. And the fact that it is in it, James, I love the book of James, for a lot of different reasons. But I love James because he takes our excuse away. A lot of you are old enough to remember Flip Wilson and his whole routine. The devil made me do it. When James brings up temptation, do you know what he says the devil's role is? Absolutely nothing. He doesn't even talk about Satan there. He does say to flee the enemy. But when he's talking about temptation, he says temptation is born... When we give in to the things we want to do, it's born out of our own desires. And so the law puts us under lock and key, and even the great escape artist Harry Houdini couldn't free himself from this particular chain. And this is grim, and it's frightening, a truth we really wish we didn't have to face but the reality is the human race is experiencing spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. Some of you will know that term. You're old enough to maybe remember. It's a, it's a syndrome that has been recognized when hostages develop a psychological bond with their captors. During the captivity. It first came to be used in 1973 when there were four hostages taken during a bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden. And when they were finally released, everybody was surprised because the hostages defended the captors. They refused to testify against them in court. A bond had been built. Folks, that's us. Whether we want to admit it or not, the reason the human race sins is because we want to. And we can't stop that on our own. I had a friend in high school with a group of preachers sitting at a restaurant, and we we're talking. We we're all in, in seminary together, and we we're talking, and one of my buddies uh, was the typical preacher's son, that, you know, the, the one that every box about preacher's kids are so bad for a long time. And then, lo and behold, God called him to ministry. He straightened up his heart. And he was talking about during the time that he was, uh, he enjoyed marijuana. And one of my friends, another of This pastor was old enough to be the father of everybody at the table, including me. He said, you can't say that. He's kind of looking around the restaurant to make sure nobody heard. And he said, why? He says, you can't say that you enjoyed marijuana. And he said, but I did. You can't say that. And he said, I wouldn't have done it had I not enjoyed it. And there are a lot of people who don't want us to be honest with the fact that even as children of the living God, we still struggle. And I believe Romans 7 is Paul's personal testimony. As a Christian, I keep doing the things I shouldn't do. And I don't do the things I should. And in frustration, he asked that question at the, the first, our, our call to worship scripture, who's going to deliver me from this? Thanks be to God in Christ. The truth is clear. We have a universal dilemma of being trapped in sin. Every one of us. We've had to admit we're transgressors. We've had to deal with this reality of sin and what it means to us that we are caught and we are trapped and we can't fix ourselves. And so Paul is drawing this, bringing this to a head and bringing us to the end to truly understand we can't fix ourselves. And that wounds us, wounds our human pride. But even though it comes, this is a painful experience finally coming to terms. I can't change my heart The universal inability to change our status as sinners is actually a cause for great hope. Now why would I say that? How can I say that? Seeing that we cannot free ourselves brings us to despair. I can't fix myself. I can't take care of what is broken in me. The jail sentence is passed. And Paul says, we can't fix this. But, we are entrapped, and as frightening as it is, it means, I am one step closer to freedom. I'm in jail, I can't escape, I can't fix myself, but the promised one has come, and there is now hope. And then the final thing Paul has to say to us, with all of these things, we are entrapped, and we can't fix it, and we have hope, Paul adds one more truth. The law disciplined that it might ultimately lead us to freedom. I did not like the word discipline when I was a boy, a little boy. I don't like being disciplined now and God continues to move. The reality, Paul pointed that the guarding of law ultimately prepared for the coming of Christ. Before this faith in Christ could come, become a reality, before he came, therefore making it possible for us to believe, the Father set in motion the law as a guardian. Now, the King James translates this word as schoolmaster. And it's building itself really off of the Latin word that grew out of the Greek word, but this wasn't a real this this being this person was not a teacher. Per se, in the Greek world, there was a household servant, the pheidogulos. He wasn't the schoolmaster; he was usually an old, trusted slave who had been with the family a long time. Uh, in Roman households, Greek households, a child would be with a wet nurse for about six years, weaned and then given over to this servant, the guardian. He was in charge of the child's moral welfare, and it was his duty to see that he acquired the qualities of becoming who he should be. He didn't teach. He had one basic duty. Most of our kids are, are not here, obviously, now, but his job was to get them to school and back again and to make sure they didn't get in trouble going or coming. He had nothing to do with teaching. Now, there is evidence that some of these people were loved by their wards. There were some of these pedagogues who were loving and kind and gracious. That was not the usual words that were used to describe the guardian. They were the dominant image for this person, a harsh disciplinarian. Roman and Greek families would actually give this person the right of corporal punishment to their children. He was to keep them in line. There was a particular pedagogue named Sasekrenes. When he was described, he was described as a fierce and mean old man. He, at one point, broke up a physical, rowdy party in a, in a very abrupt way. He took his charge and dragged him, we're told, oh, dragged him away like the lowest slave. He delivered the rest of the party goers to the magistrate and gave a heavy Suggestion on the penalty, and he said they need to be handed over to the local executioner. A Christian writer during the era, Theodora de Cyrus, observed that students are scared of their pedagogues, and they had a reason to be. These people would keep order by doing things like tweaking the ear. I would ask if anybody has ever had their ear grabbed by someone in charge of discipline, but I I know that answer for sure for one. Uh, Whipping, caning, pinching, and pretty much any other means of physical applied correction. His job was to keep them in line. And it was painful. Now, in a very proper sense, the law leads us to Christ. Not by weaning us from our sins, but revealing to us how clearly and, and truthfully the human race is embedded in sin. So when the law comes, the, Paul is saying this is a painful process. I was sharing with... Friends last night, Dylan. I don't even remember what the crime was. All I remember about the age of 10, I got my mother so angry, she slapped me. The first and only time in my life she slapped me. And it did sting. But what came after was far worse. As soon as she slapped me, my mother started crying. And all of a sudden, I am the worst human being on the face of the earth. I made my mother cry. And it was horrible. And the shame and the guilt that waved over me, I forgot about the slap. That was gone. I broke my mother's heart. And the law reveals something to us that is equally as painful. In Psalm 139, very beautiful psalm. You know everything I think about. You know me when I get down. You know everything about me. David ends the psalm by saying, search me and try me and see if there's any wicked way within me. That phrase wicked can literally be translated, see if there's any pain producing way in me. Father God, how am I breaking your heart? What am I doing to wound you? And the law's purpose was to bring us to this place of understanding what all this sin talk meant. The God who created us looked at us and it pained his heart to such an extent, even before it happened, before the foundations of the world, God's plan was already in motion. And so the reality for us is when we, when we finally look, when we look at this reality, that the reality of our hopelessness, And I've got a a slide missing, so... When we finally realize our hopelessness, we become ready to receive the gift of grace. And as only as I fully understand that I am a sinner, I can't do anything about it. My sin runs contrary to the will of the God who created me. Therefore, I am at odds with my God because I chose walk away from my father's will I chose to walk away from what he wanted from me when that finally happens well we weren't ready to receive salvation before we understood that we cannot truly receive the good news of Jesus Christ until we first understand the bad news about ourselves All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Until I realize that means me. I'm never going to turn. I'm not going to open my heart. That thou shalt not bring us to a place where we recognize we need saving. And so finally, we have cause for eternal gratitude that God has opened our eyes to our desperate need of grace. This is perfect tough love. Now I know people have thrown that term around a lot. And there are some people who use the word tough love and thereby mean I can do whatever I want to do to beat you down. That's not God. God is saying, I'm going to show you what you really are. Not because I hate you, but because I love you. And I shall be grateful all the way into eternity that God showed me the truth about Danny Nance. And when God opened my eyes, He really opened my eyes. I stand before you again, reiterating what I've told you untold numbers of times. Everything that is good about me is from the hand of God. Because He reached down to me in my sin. All of the garbage, that's me. and God helped me to finally see that. And Paul said, the thing is, the promise in Christ has come. We don't need the guardian anymore. I've trusted him. And you know what God does now in my life? Yes, he uses the scripture to convict me without a doubt. But the Holy Spirit begins the conviction (laughs) process pretty immediately. God keeps me, me me back. Paul Zoll in his book, Who Will Delivered It, said, I'm like a little duck hunter who was hunting with his friend in a wide open barren land of land in southeastern Georgia. Far away on the horizon, he noticed a cloud of smoke. and He soon re- heard the sound of crackling and it realized a strong wind was blowing. There was a wildfire and they were in its path. It was moving so fast that they realized they would never get back to their truck. His friend starts going through all of his stuff through his pockets. He empties his knapsack and and comes up with a book of matches. And Buddy doesn't know what he's doing, but his friend is lighting little fires all the way around them. And in just a matter of minutes before the fire ever gets them, they are surrounded by a circle of blackened earth. They stand in the middle of that. He still doesn't know what's going on, his first instinct is run and that's wrong because he won't outrun that fire and they get down on their knees and I'm quite certain they're praying very hard that they feel the heat, they hear the crackle, they smell the smoke, their faces are covered in handkerchiefs and they're just batting down and they're not consumed. His friend was smart enough to create what is known as a fire break. The fire went around them because there was no longer any grass to burn. And fire isn't quite smart enough to say, I'm going to target the people in the middle. It just opened around them. The fi- they weren't touched because fire would not burn the place that fire had already burned. At that place, it all says, the law is like the brush fire. I can't escape it. But if I stand in the burnt over place where law has already burned its way through, then I will not get hurt. Not a hair on my head will be singed. The death of Christ is the burned over place. There I huddle, hardly believing, yet relieved. Christ's death is disarmed law. He became a curse so that we didn't have to face it. Thanks be to God and Christ our Lord. The law reveals our transgression. The law leads to our failure. The law condemns so that salvation will come. The law disciplines leading to freedom. So what good is the law? What good is this whole long list of if you do this, this happens, thou shalt not? Why do I rejoice that the law came and I'm aware of it and I can still see the things that break my Father's heart? Why? Because it leads us to Christ. The law brings us to Christ. Before anything existed in this universe, God had a plan. God had a purpose. And all along the way, He set those moments, those milestones, bringing Him to the ultimate purpose of making atonement for the sin of humanity. So today, if you know Christ, you need to tell God, thank you for the law. Thank you that in your loving kindness you showed me things I would rather not see myself. And when you did, you followed up with the truth. You can't fix yourself. But I have sent the Christ who died in your stead so that you could have life. To bow your heads before God. You may not know the Christ who came to set you free. If you don't, I would love to talk with you in a few minutes and, and, and share with you the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. Most of us in this room are professing Christians. And the only times we Probably pay attention to the law is when we're, we've got caught in that mindset, I've got to earn my way. But folks, understand, the law's purpose is fulfilled. It did what it was created to do. And we now have hope in Jesus Christ. Now we will still see that the, God expects righteousness in his people. But there's a completely different basis. And we'll look at that in chapter 5 of this book when we get there. As the Spirit of God fills us with His fruit. And as we learn to live in Christ. Today, rejoice. Greatest gift God has given humanity is Jesus Christ and the law got us ready for that gift.